Amen. You guys know that I love sports, and as a um, coach, what we would say about our first song this morning is that's not how we drew it up. Um, sometimes you get into a rhythm and you can't break it, and that's what happened, but praise the Lord for the truth that we sung, that, that Christ is our hope in life and death, that we do see the true and better Adam in Christ. So even if the music does not go as quite as we planned or hoped, thank the Lord for his grace and his goodness in Christ. And if you have a Bible open with me, back to Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at part 2 of our series called The Spirit-Filled Life. The Spirit-Filled Life, we'll look at verses 16 through 26 on the whole and focus in on verses 19 through 21. Um, just setting the immediate context here, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul has just written of our freedom in Christ. He said, brothers, you are called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do not use your freedom in Christ as an opportunity to sin. Paul knew that his readers, being free in Christ, but yet still having their flesh within them, would surely be bent to sin. They would face temptation to sin. They had to overcome the desires of the flesh. And so right after writing of that glorious freedom that we know in Christ, Paul writes this unmistakably clear guide to how we must live as those who are free in Christ. How do we live as those who are free in Christ? We live free in Christ by walking in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit so we do not give into or gratify or walk in the desires of the flesh. We must war against the flesh, and we must be led by the Spirit in all things. So with that, let's go ahead and read our text. We'll read verses 16 through 26 to see the, the whole context here, but then we'll zone in on verses 19 through 21 shortly. So Galatians chapter 5 Verse 16 through 26, this is the word of the Lord. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you. Just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and now let's go before his throne of grace in prayer. Father, we come to you now, and we ask that you would grant us grace in this great time of need. Lord, there is no more important time in the life of a believer. There's no more important time in the life of the church than when we gather together each and every week to worship you. Lord, we worship through singing. We worship through the reading of Scripture. We worship even in our fellowship. And now, Lord, we desire to worship you through the preaching and the teaching of your word. But Lord, what a miraculous act 
that must be for that preaching and teaching to be acceptable worship and to have its perfect and sanctifying effect upon us. Lord, this is a time where we are wholly dependent upon your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit who is our helper. Lord, would your Spirit illuminate the truth and help our minds and our hearts to humbly submit to those truths that are evident in your word. Lord, we pray that you would break us of sin. Pray that you would reveal sin to us, reveal to us these deeds of the flesh that may be present in our lives, and Lord, crush us under the weight of our sinfulness. Crush us not eternally, but crush us enough to drive us to Christ. May we go to Christ in faith and in repentance. May we go to Christ in brokenness. But may we go to Christ with utmost confidence, knowing that he is the great high priest who has made a sacrifice on our behalf and who now intercedes on our behalf before the throne of the Most High. Lord, in all that is said and all that is done through the rest of our service, I pray that you would that you would throw us upon Christ. I pray that you would reveal your mercy and your grace to us. Pray that you would reveal our sinfulness to us, and by your great and powerful Holy Spirit, would you renew us. Lord, may our minds and our hearts be renewed through the, through the preaching and the teaching of your truth. Lord, please help us in this time. For if you do not bless us here, we have gathered in vain. May we treat you as holy in our worship. May we revere your great and mighty and holy name. Lord, we desire that our worship would be acceptable before you. And we ask that you would help us, help us to see Christ. Pray that Christ would be magnified in us today. And I pray in his name, amen. So again, the, the Spirit-filled life, the Spirit-filled life, uh, just want to briefly recall what we looked at last week, because the, these four sermons in this section are really one long sermon. There, there's five points in this section, and we're just going to keep plowing through with those five points. We'll look at just a portion of that third point today. Last week, we began by seeing the command of God in verse 16, the command to walk by the Spirit. For there can be no progress in the Christian life. There can be no Christian life, period, if we don't walk by the Spirit. For the Spirit gives you new life. The Spirit empowers that new life in you to become more and more like Christ. And we're called to walk in that Spirit. That is to make progress in the Spirit, to make progress by the Spirit, to make progress in our sanctification, in that process where the Lord makes us more and more like Christ. For sanctification is nothing more, and it's certainly nothing less than becoming more like Christ. So that was the command, and Paul also spoke for the great reason for this command and in his telling of the conflict the conflict of the Christian life, that we have this flesh that remains in us that is at war and in opposition to the Spirit of God that is in us. So we have the Spirit who has given us life, who has taken up residence, and we have that remaining flesh that strives and tempts and makes war against the Holy Spirit of God in us. This dictates our need to walk in the Spirit, for your flesh will not be gone entirely until you go to be with Christ in glory. We ended last time considering the contrast, the contrast between the deeds of the flesh 
and the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul makes clear with his statement in verse 19, beginning verse 19, that these deeds of the flesh are evident. They're clear. They are apparent. They are obvious in the one who is not in Christ. But in similar fashion, the fruit of the Spirit should also be evident. If you are in Christ, you will be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. This is a singular fruit, a singular outworking where the Spirit of God empowers you to walk in these things, love, joy, peace, patience, and on and on. This means that every believer will have each of these characteristics present in your life. One who is in the flesh may be marked by only one or two or a few of these deeds of the flesh. You don't have to walk in every single one of the deeds of the flesh to be marked as one who is outside of Christ. But to be marked as one who is in Christ, you must show all of the fruit of the Spirit. This is a singular fruit. We are not defined as only holy or only loving. We are defined as only holy. We are not defined as only loving or joyful or peaceful or patient. All of these things are at work and are present and increasing in the life of a believer. Last time we set forth this primary focus, this primary thesis of Paul in verses 16 through 26, we saw that you must prove that you belong to Christ, that you are purchased by Christ and you identify yourself with him. You belong to Christ and you prove that by displaying the fruit of the Spirit. You prove that you belong to Christ by displaying the fruit of the Spirit and putting off and waging a victorious war against the deeds and the desires of the flesh. That's Paul's overarching theme in these verses today, and we're going to stay within that theme today, but we're going to dive in and take a deep and a broad look at the deeds of the flesh. You say, why are we going to take a deep look at the deeds of the flesh? Well, for one, that's what's in the Scripture. We take what's in the Scripture, and we want to understand the Scripture. But two, we understand from this passage and from the whole of Scripture that spiritual life is warfare. Spiritual life is an ongoing battle between the Spirit of God and the flesh within you. And if you're going to fight a battle, you must know your enemy. You must define that which you are battling against. And so as much as anything today, we we certainly do want to examine our lives to see if we're in Christ by seeing whether or not we display these deeds of the flesh, but we must also define the enemy. We must see that which we are to put off while we are putting on Christ. If we're going to kill the flesh, we must know what the deeds of the flesh are. And Paul lays that out for us very clearly. So again, we pick up in the the third point overall, the conflict, the the command, the conflict, and now the contrast. The contrast, looking specifically at the deeds of the flesh. I want to read verses 19 through 21 again, just to set these just immediately before our eyes and before our minds, and then we'll jump in. Verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So now this is a broad list, a very broad list of sins, of the deeds of the flesh, and they are very far-reaching. They can affect both your heart and your mind and, and certainly re- reach over into the actions of your life. Um, we could consider these from various angles in various groupings. In, in the, the brush of commentaries I read, some would group these sins and some just took them individually. I'm of the opinion that I think it's helpful in this type of setting to look at these in groups, to kind of understand the four overarching groups of deeds of the flesh that we must battle. So that's what we're going to do. There's four groups here 
that, that we'll pick apart a little bit. We'll look at some of the specifics. We'll do some word studies, and, and we must examine ourselves. We, we must step back and examine our own lives as we consider these deeds of the flesh. So the first group, in um, verse 19, we see this group that really falls under the idea of adultery or sexual immorality. Paul begins, he says, The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Those, those fall under the heading, as um, Calvin would point out, the heading of adultery. Immorality speaks to any kind of illicit or illegitimate sexual activity. So that is anything outside of the confines of marriage that is inappropriate or, or does not accord with God's design for morality in that sense. I'm going to be a little bit careful how I say that because there are young ears in here. But we, we, it's anything that falls outside the confines of God's instruction for what is moral. Um, you can commit adultery. You can walk in this kind of immorality both in your heart and in physical activity, in your mind and in physical activity. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 28, 28, that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, the sin of immorality includes both the thought, the, the mind, and your action. It's a deed of the flesh that is evident and apparent both in your thought life, in your heart, in your desires, and then it can also be present and evident in your actions. Then Paul writes, not only is there immorality, but there is impurity. Impurity, that which is unclean or defiled. And one Greek dictionary defined it as the impurity of lustful and luxurious living. You say, how does that have to do with adultery or immorality? I think with the surrounding context, we see it's that unclean desire, that impure desire, that, that lustful craving for those things that really do not accord with Scripture. It's the idea of taking that which is holy and good and blessed from the Lord and turning it into something that fulfills the carnal desires of your flesh. That's a good reminder that even good things like the relationship between a husband and a wife, even something as blessed as that, can be turned into sin if you do not rightly partake of it. We are to glorify God in all things that we do, and that even includes the relationship between husband and wife. It can be this, this impurity, this lustful craving, this sensual desire. Sensuality is the next term that Paul lists. It really speaks to unbridled and excessive passion or lust. So you see how these come together and show us this idea of somebody who's, who's really just a sexually charged individual who is overwhelmed and overcome with these desires that are not in accord with Scripture. This is one who does not take into account God's beautiful design for man and woman, for husband and wife, but is rather driven by the passions and the lust of the flesh. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, that we must flee immorality. Flee this kind of immorality. He said, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and now that you are not your own? This type of immorality is a sin against your own body, and your body, Paul says, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. When you sin against your body in this way, you sin grievously and specifically against the Holy Spirit of God who has taken up residence in you. These are serious Serious sins. Paul says that we are to glorify God in our bodies, not to be given over to passion and lust and desire. And Paul says that these deeds are evident. They're clear. They are apparent in the one who is not in Christ. 
that these deeds would be seen to, for someone to make no progress in their battle against these things. We know, especially in our country, that there is an absolute war against men and women alike in this arena. And so we know as a church that we will see these things come up in the lives of those who are even in Christ. But friends, you must know that there is progress in the one who is in Christ. The Lord brings you to repentance when you commit any kind of sin and you make progress in godliness. In the one whom these deeds are evident, you could say that they have fewer and fewer victories. Their resistance is growing weaker and weaker and less and less. So that's the the first group, the idea of adultery and immorality. There's a second group. If we continue reading at the beginning of verse 20, Paul writes about idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry and sorcery, in effect, in practice, are pagan religion in physical form, in physical practice. We know what idolatry is, right? Idolatry, especially in, in the times of Scripture, would be this idea of having a carved image, this, this graven image that you would put on your mantle or um, in your bedroom or wherever, and it would be the thing that you worship. The Lord says that you are not to have idols. You are not to worship anything but the true God. But in the pagan religions of Paul's day, idolatry was very common. Idolatry is still common in our day, but it has, I think, in many places, especially in our culture, in our context, in our land, idolatry has taken on a a different form, an expanded form. We don't necessarily see people with idols hanging on their mantle, although we could say that a TV often becomes an idol, that that entertainment that might hang over the mantle, but, but it's taken on this form of the idolatry of self, the idolatry of pleasure, the idolatry of well-being or philosophy or any other created thing. Idolatry is not just a graven carved image of wood or stone or precious metals. Idolatry is anything that takes the rightful place of God as your highest priority and the object, the only and the supreme object of your faith and your worship. It's the idea that, that God is not being given the respect and the honor and the worship that he alone is due, that he alone deserves, and that he and he alone requires. God is sovereign. He is holy. He is righteous. He is supreme. He has created all things, and God has the right to demand that we worship him and him alone. And not only does he have that right, but he has exercised that right, and rightfully so. If you worship anything other than the holy God of heaven, you are worshiping a lesser and an and a object that is not worthy of praise. So again, what are some common idols? Wealth, pleasure, earthly things, the accumulation of earthly things. You may make an idol out of a job. You can make an idol out of relationships. Young people and, and I guess older people alike can make idols out of the idea of marriage or the idea of children, the idea of your family, the, the friends that your children may have. All of these things can become idols because we place these things above the Lord and their chief importance. But beyond that, there's the idea that there are many who profess a love for and a devotion to the Lord who are really idolaters. They, they may go to church every Sunday. They, they may stand and sing and sit and read and listen to the sermon, but they're really idolaters because they don't worship the God of the Bible. The Lord has shown us who he is through his holy scriptures, and we are to worship the God of the Bible alone. And we are to worship him as he alone prescribes to be worshipped. So that's the idea of idolatry, worshiping something other than God. The idea of sorcery is um, similar, I believe. It's linked to the idea of, of worship and, and pagan rituals in worship. Sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia, 
where we get the word pharmacy. And in Paul's day, it would speak to those who would go to pagan worship festivities and they would partake of drugs to become intoxicated and inebriated. And then they would experience this false form of worship that way. Paul says that is absolutely, obviously, a deed of the flesh. This was a demonic form of worship in Paul's day. This idea that you would be in a drug-induced stupor and then trying to worship your pagan idol. And there's a similar drug, I think, that's prevalent in our day. We think back to what we talked about with the idea of idolatry. It's the drug of pleasure, the drug of self-obsession, the drug of self-worth and emotionalism and feel-goodism. So many people numb themselves to the realities of life by basing their lives on their emotions, what feels good, what feels right, or what pleases themselves. That is sorcery in practice today, where you are, you are numbing yourself to the reality of life by acting only upon your emotions rather than coming before the Lord in worship no matter how terrible life is going. Your world could be falling apart. Some people in some places, some within our body, are experiencing these great trials and sufferings. But if you come before the Lord to worship and try to numb yourself by, by looking to anything other than the glorious God, you are practicing, in effect, sorcery and idolatry. So we must worship God and God alone, and we must understand that He is sovereign over our circumstances. He is sovereign and He is good. We, we do suffer. And, and to say those things is not... Is not to make light of trials and suffering. There are many in here that are suffering greater than I've ever experienced. And those of you who are, you probably know who you are. And so, so hear that, to, not to say that you make light of your trial, but as you walk through suffering, don't let your, your eyes, your hope, your gaze be fixated on things other than the ultimate prize. Look to the prize. Look to Jesus Christ. Worship God in truth, for there is no greater joy as a believer than to worship the Lord in truth, to experience His presence in that way that we experience when we gather to worship in truth. So at their roots, both idolatry and sorcery are a rejection of the authority and the order and the command to worship God. They are sins that break the first and the second commandments and really typically spill into breaking the third and the fourth commandments, to have no other, to have no other gods, to have no idols, to not take the name of the Lord in vain, and to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. When you worship an idol, but say you're worshiping the God of the Bible, you profane his name. When, if we as a church were to gather to worship on the Lord's Day, you know, we don't practice the Sabbath, we're not Sabbatarians, but if we were to gather on the Lord's Day and to worship a God other than the God revealed in Scripture, we would be, in effect, breaking that fourth commandment. We would be profaning the worship of the Lord on the Lord's Day. So we have this idea of immorality, adultery, we have the idea of false pagan religious practices. And then there's a third group, a third group in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, idolatry and sorcery. And then Paul gives a longer list, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. Now, it doesn't take a biblical scholar to see where these sins can be seen in our lives, right? These are the sins that are present and apparent in our interactions and in our dealings with and our hearts toward others. It seems in, in looking at these things that, that we can kind of group these by root sins, heart, sins that begin in the heart, and then the, the actions that come out from those heart sins. And I'll, I'll try to show you, I'll try to explain what I'm getting at there and, and how we see that. 
So Paul begins again, enmities, strife, jealousy, an outburst of anger. Now it's important to understand outburst of anger really speaks only to an anger that is welling up and, and filling up in you that is ready to boil over, but it hasn't boiled over yet. It's still a, a sin, an a, a sin of anger that's in your heart. And with that understanding, then we can see how these are all really deeds of the heart, to have a spirit of enmity, to have a spirit of strife, to have a spirit of jealousy and a spirit that, that overflows with anger. Now, perhaps you remember what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 15. He said that for out of the heart, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, and these are the things that defile a man. It is out of the heart that these sins come, that these sins originate. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 12 that the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings from out of his evil treasure that which is evil. It is from the overflow of the heart that we speak and from the overflow of the heart that we act. So enmity, strife, jealousy, and anger are those sins that begin in the heart. They begin in the heart, and if, if by God's grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit we don't kill those sins, they will show forth in action. They will show forth in our relationships with others. So again, let's define those terms real quick, and then we'll move on to look at the outworking of these sins. And as we define these, it's important that we stop and examine ourselves in light of these. Don't think about your neighbor or your family member, or your friend who might have these things present. Think about yourself. Examine yourself in light of these description of these deeds of the flesh. Now we begin with enmities. Enmities. Vine's Dictionary describes this term as being the opposite of agape love. I think that may be the, the most telling definition that we can ascribe to the idea of enmity. It's hostility towards others. It, we are called to love one another as the Lord has loved us. And to be full of enmity is to show the opposite of that sacrificial kind of love to another. To, to um, show strife is to show a contentious spirit. It is one who's always looking for an argument. If you've been around people long, you know those type of people those who are always quick to find whatever they can disagree or argue with. You're likely familiar with the term jealousy. If you don't know jealousy in action, give a little kid a toy and and let another young child stand there and watch that kid play with that toy and you will see jealousy. It's the desire to have something that you don't have, to see somebody have something and to desire to have it for yourself. And, of course, we've already discussed and considered the idea of outburst of anger. It's that that fierce anger and rage that fills up in a person as as they become angry and and are ready to burst out in that anger because of whatever, because they haven't gotten their way, because someone spoke to them one way or, or treated them a way that they did not like. They are full of anger. So these are the deeds of the flesh in their beginning point in the heart, where, where you're full of enmity, where you are contentious and full of strife, where you look to another person and you see that they have what you do not, and you become jealous. And becoming jealous, and maybe you are also full of anger and rage, and that anger is ready to burst forth. So let's tie these into the next group, the next set that Paul mentions, where he says that there's also disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. A disputer, according to the Greek term, one who is full of disputes, is one who is full, I thought this was interesting, of selfish ambition. It's one who desires to put himself first. That's what the dispute is, that it's somebody trying to put themselves first. And what is that? That is the opposite, of course, of agape love. That's one who is full of enmity. What are the 
results of, of those who are full of en- enmity and strife. I think if you're full of enmity and strife, you will see lots and lots of dissension in your life. If you are a contentious per- person, you will experience dissension, division, disunity, anger, malice, hatred. What about factions? What is a factious person? It's one who divides self and others into groups. That's what factions are. They are various groups of people. A faction can be a group over here and a group over here. And so a factious person divides people into various groups. It's one who is jealous. It's one who is given to strife and enmity and anger. So what about envy then? Obviously, envy and jealousy tie closely together. Envy is the necessary outworking of jealousy when that deed of the flesh is not killed in the heart. You have, you don't get, and so you become envious. That is the idea of a anger and a hatred towards the person who has what you don't have. So not only do you want what they have, but then you're angry with them for having that very thing. So it's plain to see that these sins take root in the heart. That's why we must examine our hearts as believers and why we must ask the Lord to examine our hearts and to show us if there are sinful and grievous ways in us because we don't always see these sins in our lives. That's why it's important to have brothers and sisters around us who can speak into our hearts and lives, who know us and are able to hold us accountable because these sins begin in the heart. You know, if you find yourself regularly facing strife and division and dissension and factions, whether it's in the home or in the church or in the workplace, the first thing that you must do is ask if you are the cause of those things. You know, we we can face those difficult situations so often, and again, the flesh in us always and immediately wants to point to somebody else. It's your fault that there's division between us. It's not my fault. It's your fault that we are striving with one another. It's not my fault. That's what our flesh does. But when you experience those things in your life, and again, that's the church, the home, the workplace, or wherever else you go, examine your own heart. Examine your own life, especially if you experience those things often. Sometimes there might be a common denominator, and that common denominator might be me. That common denominator might be you. Examine yourself. These sins are sadly common in the church. And these sins are very dangerous in the church. The, the Lord himself said that the world knows us by our love for one another. These things are the opposite of the outworking of a heart of love. One common thread in, in these sins is division and disunity. The deeds of the flesh threaten to destroy the church. That's why it's important for us as the church to examine these things because these things will seek to divide and destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ and we are to protect and to guard and to build up this bride of Christ. So we must examine ourselves. We must put off these deeds of the flesh and we must walk by the Spirit because the, the greatest sin, one of the greatest sins that we can commit is to bring division and disunity in the bride of Christ. So there's a, a final subsection of the deeds of the flesh. And um, hopefully, I, I hope these are things that here, here in a church audience, we, we don't have anybody that raises their hand and says, I'm guilty of this. But there may be. And so let's look at it and let's look at the implications. In um, verse 21, Paul writes of drunkenness and carousing. Drunkenness and carousing. Now, considering the pagan culture of Paul's day, we understand that drunkenness was a common thing. Drunkenness and carousing kind of marked pagan religion of Paul's day. I, I trust that you understand what drunkenness is. Intoxication with alcohol. That's exactly what Paul has in mind when he writes here. Drunkenness with alcohol. Intoxication 
with alcohol. So what about um, carousing? Carousing is often the companion of drunkenness, and I found this description um, maybe both a little amusing, but also helpful in understanding what carousing was. Um, Thayer's Dictionary describes and defines carousing as a riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows. A riotous procession of half-drunken, riotous fellows, frolicsome fellows. It's those drunks that you often see out, quote-unquote, having a good time together. (coughs) If you have ever been on a college campus, perhaps for a college football game, you've seen carousing. If you've ever been to a concert, you know, the the Big String Jam was common back in Huntsville back in the, I guess, early 2000s. You would see carousing, that group of drunks who just migrates from place to place in essentially a small little riot, a small little party. And so that's what Paul has in mind here. But now Paul also taught in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, that drunkenness is the opposite of being filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so for this one, kind of flip this on its head a little bit, because again, I don't, I don't know of anyone here that is given to, to the alcoholic beverage to that extent. But think about the, the flip side of that, that we are to be filled with the Spirit. You may not be a drunk, but are you filled with the Spirit? Are there things in your life that take your care and your concern and your devotion away from being devoted to the Lord? That is essentially being drunk with those things. So ask yourself, what cares and concerns of this world, of this temporal world, take my focus off of Christ? Because those things cause you not to walk by the Spirit to, in effect, become drunk. Again, we must examine ourselves in this. What what things take the primary place? Again, we've looked at at several things, and you can kind of see how these will stack on top of each other when examining your life. If you have these things that take the place of walking with Christ in your life, not only are you practicing idolatry, but now you're also practicing this idea of being drunk with something other than being filled with the Spirit. So examine yourself, and I likewise must examine myself. Now, if this long list of deeds of the flesh is not enough, Paul gives us this little addition at the end, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Things like these. This list is not exhaustive. And and so we must understand that we examine our life to see if we walk in the things that are not of the Spirit of God. It's a statement like this where Scripture is so clear that our life in Christ is not and cannot be reduced to a to following a set of rules. Your life in Christ is not merely following a set of rules. Your life in Christ is walking by the Spirit and putting off the flesh. These are guidelines by which we must examine our thoughts and our motives and our desires and our actions. We must be careful that that we don't give ourselves excuses in this, we understand that there is a battle with the flesh. We understand that we will not be perfect in this life. We understand, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that you will fall into sin, that I will fall into sin as well. But again, Paul says these things are evident in the one who is not in Christ. So examine your life, ask those close to you to examine your life and tell you whether or not these deeds of the flesh are evident. Examine yourself knowing that you're not following a prescribed set of rules, rather you're walking in the Spirit. So what's the importance of all this? Well, we looked at that a little bit last time. At the end of verse 21, Paul says, I forewarned you of these things and It is that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is of eternal significance. If you practice these things, if your life is marked by the 
commission, the committal of these sins, on the authority of Scripture, we must say that you are not in Christ. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, that's not to say that we must be perfect. It's not to say that you ever will be perfect in this life. And, you, and it's not to say that you must be to be in Christ. But you must not be given to the practice of sin. What's very clear is that the one who is marked by the practice of these type of sins is one who does not know Jesus Christ in a saving way. Jesus Christ transforms every aspect of your life. There are no sins left untouched by the saving power of Christ. You ask yourself, what is the desire and the direction of your heart? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of those people marked in practicing those types of sins will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul continues on some there. He says, and such were some of you. So it's not that believers are these super people who were never marked by sin. It's that such were some of you, Paul continues on to say, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You, Paul says, were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God. So I ask you this question. Are you washed? Have you been justified? Have you been declared righteous, not because of your own deeds, but because of the finished work? of Christ. That's not all that Paul said. He said, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. So we ask the question, are you washed? Are you justified? Are you being sanctified? Are you being made to look and live more and more like Christ? If you answer, yes, I have been washed, yes, I have been justified, then you must answer, yes, I am being sanctified. Because all who Christ saves, he will sanctify. I love MacArthur's take on this and the, the serious nature of these things. He wrote that even though these Galatians were not habitually doing such evils, Paul calls on them to walk in the Spirit so that they do not even do them occasionally. Paul's called these people saints. He's saying that they are not marked by these deeds of the flesh. But the command, again in verse 16, is to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit so you don't even occasionally commit these sins. Again, you won't be perfect, but if you walk by the Spirit, you will be made to be more pure and more holy and more righteous practically in your life. Now, Lord willing, we will pick up next week on the fruit of the Spirit, looking at verses 22 and 23, but I want to close briefly considering one idea that Paul mentions in verse 21 that we haven't touched on. He says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we've got this list of do's and don'ts in this passage, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, and that can so easily cause us to, to just compartmentalize our lives that I'm not doing these things, I am doing these things, so everything's good. Well, friends, if we don't go any further than that, we've just fallen into legalism, which Paul has spent four chapters in this very letter telling people not to do. Don't count on the law for your justification. Calvin picks up on this. He wrote that the word inherit signifies to possess by a hereditary right. It's a, a familial possession, something that is passed down through a family. Calvin continued that, By no right but that of adoption do we obtain eternal life. So as we consider all these do's and don'ts, 
Don't walk in the deeds of the flesh. Do walk in the Spirit. Don't miss out on this glorious word that you are an inheritor of the kingdom of God. You are called. You are foreknown. You are predestined. You are adopted into God's family. That is how you are saved because God placed his affection upon you in eternity past. He marked you out. He called you to be his own. He called you, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 4, to be chosen so that you would be made holy and blameless in Christ. Now, surely he's got a a positional type of idea there that you are positionally holy and blameless because of the work of Christ. And we rest in that and we say, thank you, Lord, and amen. But don't forget what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1. He, he commands us there on the authority of the Lord that like the Holy One who called you, you must be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You are holy. You are blameless. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy in all your behavior. So may we walk in the Spirit. May we not carry out the deeds and the desires of the flesh. May we be holy like the Holy One who called us and adopted us. May we be able to join into this glorious inheritance with our Savior. And we do that again by God's grace, by walking in the Spirit. Verse 24, maybe the, the most glorious verse in this whole passage of Galatians 25, Paul says, that we belong to Christ and that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its desires. Friends, may we walk in that truth this week to crucify the flesh and its passions and desires and its temptations. And in doing that, may we prove that we belong to Christ, that he is our master that he is our Savior, and that he is our Lord. May we walk in those things, pursue those things in the Spirit, and to the end that God is glorified in our lives. Let's close in prayer.